Well, that one's a doozy. (laughs) Well, we are in a season, the church universal is in a a season uh, called Lent. And in this season, we are preparing for the good news of Good Friday and Easter, where the problem of our sin was dealt with definitively. And it's our conviction, and it's the conviction of churches around the world, that the Bible is ultimately telling one universal story. It's a story about Jesus. And so for the season of Lent, what we're doing as a church is we're walking through various Old Testament passages and seeing hints, we're seeing shadows of the cross as a reminder to us that the climax of the Bible, which ultimately is the climax of history, is, what, is the events that took place on Golgotha, on, the, on that hill where Jesus offered his life for us. So hopefully that helps us to frame, to rightly frame, to orient ourselves as we look at this story, which is hard and confusing, uh, but ultimately I, I believe with all of my being, like, this is good news for us. So let's pray and ask for God's help as we try to interpret this text. Would you please pray with me? Father in heaven, we thank you this morning for the gift of your word. We thank you for the fact that as we encounter things that are challenging to us, that, that sort of that can shake us. Um, Lord, we, we thank you for the truth that you are present with us in your word, that you give us the gift of your spirit to help us to understand what was written And God, we thank you for being a father who makes himself known to us. God, there's so much love revealed in that reality. So Lord, we pray that you would help us to cling to it this morning, that we we pray that you would help us to see Jesus, and we pray that he would be glorified. And in his great name we pray, amen. Well, Joshua Bell is an acclaimed American violinist, and he has been exceptional since he was very young. He made his orchestral debut at the age of 14 with the Philadelphia Orchestra, and at age 17, performed his first solo at Carnegie Hall. He's an impressive guy. And over the last several decades, he has set himself apart as one of the world's best violinists. Well, Bell had long dreamed of playing a Stradivarius, the legendary violins made by the Italian luthier uh, Antonio Stradivari in the 17th and 18th century. His violins are known for their unparalleled sound quality and are considered to be some of the finest and most sought-after instruments in the world. Well, back in 2001, Bell's dream of owning and playing a Stradivarius came true when he purchased the Gibson X Huberman Stradivarius for nearly $4 million. Well, this violin had a storied history. Uh, It was crafted in 1713 and had been stolen twice, understandably, if it goes for $4 million, from the previous owner, the famous Polish violinist Bronisław Huberman. For Bell, owning and playing this violin, it wasn't just a fulfillment of a lifelong dream. It, It provided a profound connection to the history and legacy of classical music, which he loved with everything he was. Now, while we know the cost of this violin, right, it's $4 million, to him, this instrument was priceless. But in 2004, just a few years after making this purchase, disaster struck. 
While on, the train, while on a train in London, Bell momentarily placed his violin in an overhead luggage compartment. And in a moment of distraction, he exited the train without his violin. The violin, this thing worth millions that provided this irreplaceable connection to music history, was left unattended on a public train. Can you imagine that feeling? I mean, I heard gasps, right? That is the proper reaction to such an event. But can you imagine being there? I think some of you can. While you may have never misplaced an object worth millions of dollars, perhaps you know the feeling of waiting, longing, yearning for something, obtaining it, only to have it slip through your fingers. Or worse yet, to have it ripped from your grasp. Have you been there? And just so you're not thinking about Joshua Bell for the rest of the sermon, he did get his violin back. It all ended up being okay. But that feeling, in a deeper and much more profound way, was the experience of Abraham in this text. See, Abraham's story in the Bible begins in Genesis 12. Abraham is from Ur of the Chaldeans, and he, according to Deuteronomy 26.5, was a wandering airman. But in Genesis 12, God called him, told him to leave his father, his home country, and go to the land of Canaan with the promise that one day God would give him that land and that he would bless Abraham with many descendants. Abraham was 75 years old when God made this promise to him. Well, in Genesis 15, which we looked at last Sunday, Abraham pointed out that he saw a problem with that promise. Because at that point, at age 85, he still had no children. How would he possibly become the father of many nations? Well, as we saw, God reiterated the promise in Genesis 15, and this time in dramatic fashion. And Abraham once again believed God, and we're told that his belief, his faith, was credited to him as righteousness. Well, as we move on a couple of chapters and get to Genesis 17, 14 more years have passed, and Abraham and Sarah are still childless. But in in Genesis 17, God once again appears to Abraham, and once again, he reiterates the promise. He tells Abraham that he is going to have a son with Sarah. Abraham was 99 Sarah was 90. It was improbable when God made the promise the first time when Abraham was 75 and Sarah was 66. But now at 99 and 90, it is all but impossible. So much so that when Sarah hears the promise, she laughs. In Genesis 18, we read, So she laughed to herself. After I am worn out and my Lord is old, will I have delight? But the Lord asked Abraham, Why did Sarah laugh, saying, can I really have a baby when I'm old? Is anything impossible for the Lord? At the appointed time, I will come back to you, and in about a year, she will have a son. Sarah denied it. I did not laugh. She said because she was afraid. But then God said, no, but but, but you did laugh. (laughs) I I, I love that that little portion of that passage. Well, despite Sarah's laughter at God's promise, we're told in Genesis 21, the Lord came to Sarah as he, as he had said, and the Lord did for Sarah what he had promised. 
Sarah became pregnant, and she bore a son to Abraham in his old age at the appointed time God had told him. Abraham named his son who was born to him, the one Sarah bore to him, Isaac. Isaac is a name that means laughter. And so a little later on in in that same passage, Sarah declares, God has made me laugh, and everyone who hears will laugh with me. She also said, who would have told Abraham that Sarah would nurse children? Yet I have borne a son for him in his old age. Abraham was 100 years old when this promise finally came to fruition. For decades, likely three quarters of a century, Abraham had been longing for a son. And finally, here he was. And probably as far as Abraham was concerned, his life was now complete. Now he had a name, a future. He would live on through his son. Or so he thought. Because our text this morning opens with these words. After these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, here I am, he answered. Take your son, Mm -hmm. your only son, Isaac, whom you love okay, and go to the land of Moriah, sure, fine, and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains I will tell you about. What? (laughs) Take your son, your only son, whom you love, and offer him there as a burnt offering. What is going on here? Well, that is what we're going to explore together this morning. And we'll look at this text focusing on three central elements. We'll look at the call, the test, and the lamb. All of which drive home the important truth that the Lord will provide, that our God does provide. So let's start now by looking at the call. So what is the call? Well, we just read it a moment ago. Abraham is to take his son, his only son, Isaac, and sacrifice him as a burnt offering. Now, interestingly, there's a similarity between this call and the original call that Abraham received from God back in Genesis 12. You can see them side by side here. In both instances, there is a call to go, to leave everything that is known, everything that makes sense, and to trust God on the journey. And in both instances, God promises to reveal himself along the way. He's going to reveal himself progressively. He gives a command to go and calls him in both circumstances to trust. And in both calls, there's an element of sacrifice. In the first call, in the call to leave Abraham's land, relatives, and father's house, Abraham is giving up his status, his name, his security, his inheritance. He is effectively giving up everything. And the same is even more true in the second call. And in order to understand this second call, we have to make some effort to take on an ancient Near Eastern mindset. John Levinson, a Harvard scholar in Jewish studies, wrote a book called The Death and Resurrection of the Beloved Son. And his book sheds light on how ancient societies were more about the collective than the individual. See, unlike today, where personal success and achievements are the focus, back then, people's dreams were centered around their family's welfare and status. 
differentiation wasn't really a topic of conversation at that point. Now, not only were ancient culture, uh, ancient cultures more family-centric, they are also largely influenced by the tradition of primogeniture, where the eldest son inherited most, if not all, the family's wealth. And this was done to ensure the family's social standing for subsequent generations. See, wealth at this time wasn't held in banks. Instead, it was wrapped up in land. So if you had multiple children, each of them expecting an inheritance, then your family's wealth ends up getting broken up, and that diminishes over time. So to avoid this, everything was instead given to the firstborn son, which would then secure the family's position in society. So ancient families were deeply invested in the firstborn son. To give up the firstborn is to give up Isaac was essentially to give up everything. And God knows that. So what was this call really? Well, let's now look at the test. This call was a test. And that reality is called out in verse 1 explicitly. After these things, God tested Abraham. But what was he testing? Notice what he says in verse 2, how he calls out Isaac. He says, take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love whom you love. Why does God call out Isaac in this way? I mean, honestly, it kind of sounds like something that like, my kids do to each other. Uh, if we're in a circumstance where uh, someone does something wrong and we take a toy away or something like that, the other one inevitably will kind of like taunt their sibling that is, is receiving a consequence. Uh, so if I take something from Oliver, Harper kind of has a tendency to say like, uh, Oliver, which one is your favorite toy? Was it, was it the one that mom and dad just took away? Are, are you missing your favorite toy right now? God's calling out of Isaac kind of sounds something like that, but let me assure you that that is not what's going on here in this passage. No, instead, God is getting to the heart of the test. See, Isaac was the fulfillment of all of Abraham's longings. And in the attention given to Abraham's love, we see that Isaac not only has Abraham's future, he has Abraham's heart. And this is huge. Why? Because despite our notions of ourselves, right, we like to think of ourselves as primarily rational creatures. Right? We make intentional, logical, well-thought-out decisions. The reality is very different. Timothy Wilson, a psychologist at the University of Virginia in his book, Strangers to Ourselves, claims that only about 5% of what we do on a given day is the result of conscious and deliberate choice. 5%. So if our rational faculties aren't responsible for most of our decisions, what is? The answer is our intuitions, our feelings, our hearts. The social psychologist Jonathan Haidt compares the head and the heart to an elephant and a writer. And he says that he explicitly said, you know, uses the illustration of an elephant and a writer instead of a horse and a writer because an elephant's a lot bigger so if an elephant wants to go in a particular direction, the rider's just kind of along for the ride. It's not really directing much. And this way of conceiving of human persons is also biblical. Right? We see this truth demonstrated in Paul's prayer at the beginning of the book of Philippians. In Philippians 1, 9 through 11, we read, And I pray this, that your love will keep on growing in knowledge and every kind of discernment, that your love will keep growing 
in knowledge and every kind of discernment, so that you may approve the things that are superior and may be pure and blameless in the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Right? Notice the progression of Paul's prayer. It begins by praying that the Philippians' love might grow more, because according to the Christian philosopher James Smith, in some sense, love is the condition for knowledge. Typically, we think of loving following knowledge, but Smith reverses the order saying, I love in order to know. And if we're going to discern what is best, what is excellent, what really matters, what is of ultimate importance, Paul tells us that the place to start is by attending to our loves. And this is why Proverbs tells us, guard your heart above all else, for it is the source of life. And I think Christians in past eras seem to understand this point quite well. So for example, St. Augustine in his confessions wrote, my weight is my love. Wherever I am carried, my love is carrying me. Augustine, a man who penned more than five million words of theology and philosophy in his lifetime, a man who is by all measures a brilliant thinker, recognized this about himself. He is driven primarily by his loves. And more to our point in this text, the great reformer Martin Luther once said, whatever your heart clings to and confides in, that is really your God. Take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love. What is this test all about? It is about Abraham's heart. Abraham's deep affection for his son had the potential to turn Isaac into something that Isaac should not be. Before, Abraham's purpose in life was tied to following God's word, but now, with the gift of Isaac, it potentially has another focus. And if he's not careful, it could hinge. He could hinge his hope, his future, on Isaac's well-being and happiness as opposed to following the word of God. Now, God isn't telling him, don't love your son. Rather, he was warning against making a loved one into something like a false god. Now, without divine intervention, Abraham's love for his son might have surpassed all else, leading to idolatry, which is inherently harmful. Thus, the severe trial Abraham faced was, in a way, an act of mercy. Isaac was a precious gift. But he could only be rightly and safely cherished if Abraham prioritized God above him. Ernest Becker, in his Pulitzer Prize-winning book, The Denial of Death, it's a real uplifting read, um, he talks about the human need for what he calls cosmic significance. He says that we all need this sense of cosmic significance, but it's hard to come by in, in our culture, which is consistently moving away from a belief in God. See, without God providing meaning and significance, we often then look to relationships for those things, most often familial or romantic relationships, to give us our sense of ultimate purpose. But this almost always leads to disaster. Becker asks, how can a human being be a godlike everything to another? No human relationship can bear the burden of godhood, and the attempt has to take its toll in some way on both parties. And you have likely observed or experienced this in one way or another. 
Right? You observe, or maybe you're a part of a romantic relationship in which you see one person making their partner their end-all, be-all. And what happens in that relationship? Well, the person who is elevated ends up feeling smothered. And the person who is doing the elevating either feels rejected, because usually the person's resisting that, or they feel disappointed because they're not living up to their expectations. Or we've probably observed this in parent-child relationships where a parent is clearly finding all of their hope, their identity, they're living vicariously through their children, and that pressure is crushing. This also happens with vocations, where people make their jobs their end-all, be-all, not recognizing that at some point we all have to retire. I love being a pastor. At some point in my life, hopefully not very soon, I will no longer be a pastor. And if I find my cosmic significance in my role, well, it's going to do a couple of things. It's going to make every transition in the church a source of terrible anxiety for me. It's going to make me very, it's going to make me, make me much less effective. I, if you're walking into my office for some sort of counsel, and I think, oh my goodness, this is my opportunity to prove my cosmic significance, probably not going to provide very good counsel, and you're going to feel the weight of, of the pressure I'm putting on you. I'm going to add to your burden as opposed to helping you. No person, no job, no relationship is able to bear the weight of Godhood. The only one who can is God himself. And so if we're going to love anyone or anything rightly, we need to love God first. He is the only one who can give us the cosmic significance that all of our hearts so desperately crave. So this was the test. And how did Abraham respond to this test? Well, he obeyed. As we read in verses 3 through 6, So Abraham got up early in the morning, saddled his donkey, and took with him two of his young men and his son Isaac. He split wood for a burnt offering and set out to go to the place God had told him about. On the third day, Abraham looked up and saw the place in the distance. Then Abraham said to his young men, Stay here with the donkey. The boy and I will go over there to worship, and then we'll come back to you. Abraham took the wood for the burnt offering and laid it on his son Isaac. In his hand... He took the fire and the knife, and the two of them walked on together. Now, the Bible, particularly the Old Testament, is very economic with its words. We don't have any dialogue from Abraham following God's command uh, before his beginning to obey it. But the way that the story is crafted, it's crafted intentionally and beautifully, and it shows that Abraham is shaken. One commentator notes that the order of events, right, first saddling his donkey and then going and cutting wood, this was totally illogical. And it shows that Abraham was clearly disoriented. But he obeys nonetheless. Now, many throughout the years have been deeply troubled by this text and, and have asked questions like, is the Bible condoning murder if God is the one giving the command? Is that what this text is saying? And isn't that a dangerous thing? The Danish philosopher Soren Kierkegaard uh, ex explored this line of reasoning in his famous work, Fear and Trembling, and it led him to conclude that faith, as well as life in general, is irrational and absurd. 
But such conclusions don't take into account the cultural and historical context of this text. Is murder okay because God commands it? No, and God would never command it. So what is this then? Well, we've got to go back to our discussion of the ancient Near East and, and the view of firstborn sons at that time. See, a family security and well-being in ancient civilizations, as we've already established, was completely wrapped up in the life and success of the firstborn son. So no firstborn means no future. But the Bible states repeatedly that due to the Israelites' sin, the lives of the firstborn sons were forfeit. Sin leads to death. It must be atoned for. And God had a right to collect on the debt of sin whenever he saw fit. And God made this clear in Numbers 3.13 where he says, Every firstborn belongs to me. Now, God provided ways for the lives of firstborns to be spared. It could be done through consistent offerings, as mentioned in Exodus 22, by serving at the tabernacle like the Levites in Numbers 3, or by making a payment to the tabernacle and priests, Numbers 3 once again. When God punished Egypt for enslaving the Israelites, the most severe penalty was the loss of the Egyptian firstborns, which we'll look at next weekend. The reason? Once again, the firstborn son symbolized the entire family. So when God told the Israelites that the life of the firstborn was his unless a ransom was paid, it was a powerful statement in those times that every family owed a debt to God, owed a debt to divine justice, a debt created by sin. This context is vital for understanding God's command to Abraham and Abraham's response. If Abraham had thought he heard God telling him to kill Sarah, he probably wouldn't have believed that it was really God. He would have thought, I'm hallucinating, this is problematic. He would know that such a command would go against everything God had taught about justice and righteousness. But the idea that his only son's life was at risk wasn't unthinkable to Abraham. And notice that God didn't ask Abraham to simply just go and kill Isaac in his tent. No, instead he asked for a sacrifice, symbolizing the calling in of a debt, a debt for the family's sins. Now, while Abraham knew that God had every right to call in this debt, he also knew God. And so he obeyed with hope. Notice what he says in verse 5. Then Abraham said to his young men, Stay here with the donkey. The boy and I will go over there to worship, make a sacrifice. Then we'll come back to you. Abraham knew that even if he had to do the unthinkable, the God who had every right to call in the dead of sin wouldn't let the story end there. As the writer of Hebrews tells us, by faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. He received the promises, and yet he was offering his one and only son, the one to whom it had been said, your offspring will be traced through Isaac. He considered God to be able even to raise someone from the dead. Therefore, he received him back, figuratively speaking. See, Abraham didn't know what was going on. He didn't know how the story was going to end, but he did know that the God who called him to do this thing was gracious and merciful. And he did know that this God remains true to his promises. So though devastated and disoriented, Abraham has hope. And what is his hope in? Let's now look at the lamb. 
On their journey up the mountain, Isaac, who's probably a teenager at this point, makes an observation. We read, then Isaac spoke to his father Abraham and said, my father, and he replied, here I am, my son. Isaac said, the, fa- the fire and the wood are here, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? Isaac knows something is off. His father is acting strangely, doing things out of order. He likely has no clue what's going on. I I doubt he would continue walking with Abraham if he knew what was coming next. He knows they are there to make a sacrifice. They have some of the necessary elements. There's fire, there's wood, but they're missing like the key element, the animal to be sacrificed, the lamb. So he looks at his dad and he says, dad, where's the lamb? And Abraham responds, God himself will provide the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. Then the two of them walked on together. Again, Abraham doesn't fully know what is going on, but he knows two important things. One, his sin requires a sacrifice. And two, God is gracious and merciful, and he stays true to his promises. God has promised to bless the world through Isaac, And so God is going to provide in one way or another, whether it be through some other sacrifice or through raising Isaac. He doesn't see the end, but he knows enough about God to trust. And in this way, Abraham is a powerful example to us. While we like to be in the know, to be in control, there's so much about life that is completely beyond our ability to even comprehend, let alone claim any sort of control over. There is a God, (laughs) and we are not Him. And so we need to learn to trust. We too will face situations in which we must exercise our faith, our trust in God, because we don't have the answers. The Christian author David Gibson writes in his book on Ecclesiastes, which our community group is going through right now, he says this, Part of growing up in the world is learning to grow small. God intends us to be like children who trust their parents to know best because they can see what the children can't see, and they know what the children are not yet able to know. And here's the thing. The relationship of trust is built on the character of the parents. If the parents are good and wise and kind, then the child who cannot see the end from the beginning has nothing to fear. Friends, our God has proven himself to be faithful, to not only be just, but also merciful and gracious. So where do you need to trust? What situations are you facing that seem impossible? Is God calling you right now to do something that you just don't understand? Where do you need to grow small? Abraham doesn't know what God is going to do, but he knows that God will provide. So what happens? Well, let's keep reading. We're going to read through verse 14. When they arrived at the place that God had told him about, Abraham built the altar there and arranged the wood. He bound his son Isaac and placed him on the altar on top of the wood. Then Abraham reached out and took the knife to slaughter his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. He replied, here I am. Then he said, do not lay a hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, since you have not withheld your only son from me. Abraham looked up and saw a ram caught in the thicket by its horns. 
So Abraham went and took the ram and offered it as a burnt offering in place of his son. And Abraham named that place, the Lord will provide. So it is said today, it will be provided on the Lord's mountain. So what is this event all about? Two main things. One that Abraham likely understood, and another that was far beyond his full comprehension. Abraham could see that the ordeal was a test. It was a test of who truly possessed Abraham's heart. Was he more devoted to God or to his son? When God said, now I know you fear God, he was acknowledging Abraham's complete dedication. And this didn't mean that God was uncertain of Abraham's love. God is omniscient, and he, he knew Abraham's heart. The purpose of the test was more about refining Abraham, much like gold is purified by fire. So that's one thing that's happening here. But this notable event also involves another component that Abraham in his time couldn't have fully grasped. Significantly, the, the Genesis rabbi, a pre-Christian Jewish midrash, commented that Isaac, with the wood on his back, was like a condemned man carrying his own cross. These are words written by a Jewish rabbi before the time of Jesus. And it shows us that this ultimately is a prophetic image of Jesus, who John's gospel describes as carrying the cross by himself to the place of the skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. And where is Golgotha? In the hills outside of Jerusalem, which according to 2 Chronicles 3 were formerly called Moriah. So then in the same place, many years later, another firstborn son, Jesus, carried the wood and was laid on it to be sacrificed. But unlike Isaac's story, when Jesus, the beloved son of God, called out in despair, there was no divine intervention for his rescue. In silence, God the Father made the ultimate sacrifice. This was because Jesus, God's own son, was the true substitute. He was the, the ultimate provision. See, a ram was provided in Genesis 22, which was sufficient for the moment, but it wasn't enough to atone in an ultimate sense. More sins would be committed and more rams would be needed, but Jesus came as the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And this Lamb is truly and finally sufficient. As 1 Peter 3.18 tells us, Christ also suffered for sins once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring you to God. And Paul recognized this deeper significance in Isaac's story, applying its essence to Jesus in Romans 8.32. He did not even spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How will he not also with him grant us everything? Friends, in Jesus, God has provided for our deepest need. He has given us true hope, true peace, a cosmic significance that nothing else can rival. Friends, you are so cosmically significant that the God of the universe, the one through whom everything was created, took on flesh and sacrificed himself so that we could know the Father's love for us. 
God has given us a true hope and a true peace. At the cross, we see the magnitude of God's love for us. Just as God acknowledged Abraham's love through his willingness to sacrifice Isaac, we can look at the cross confidently and say to God, now we know that you love us because you didn't spare your only son from us. In Genesis 22, we see God's amazing provision for our deepest need. And we can know, friends, that we have been loved from the very beginning. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you this morning for this text, which, though it is challenging, reminds us, Lord, of your ability to provide, your willingness to provide. A text which points forward to the greatest display of love that the world has ever known. So, Lord, we pray that you would help us to see that with fresh eyes this morning. Help us to see the extent of your love. Help us to feel that. And Lord, we pray that you would change us by that. Help us to know, God, we are cosmically significant because of the work of Jesus for us. Apply that to our hearts, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.